I was asked the question, last week we talked about how after the people have been called to repent with all of their heart, um, and we saw how it was in the heart of God towards a genuinely repentant people to, to pour out his blessings, to restore out of his goodness of his character. And one of the things when it talked about, he, he said he will take away the northerner, which was the means of his judgment. And, and someone just asked a question about, am I saying that there is no future judgment at all? Um, so if, if you heard that, uh, I, I hope you didn't hear as, as me come saying that. What I meant to say it was that he was removing judgment from the truly repentant, not that there would not be a future day of the Lord in which everybody would be judged. So good questions. If you ever hear something you think, oh, not sure what Steve meant by that, do ask it because if you thought it, then probably somebody else may have asked that question as well. But today we are finishing off chapter 2 of Joel. Uh, we kind of broke what was going to be um, verse 17 through to 32 into two sections because there was too much to deal with in, in one week. Uh, so we're up to 28 to 32 this morning. Let us come before the Lord uh, in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, full of mercy, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, we thank you that we can approach you not because we are deserving, but because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. We thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that every word is breathed out by God. It is written by men as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that that very same Holy Spirit dwells within each of your children to help us apply, hear, and respond accordingly to the Spirit-inspired words that we look at this morning. So it would help me to think and speak clearly, help us to hear and think soberly, and be led and hear by the ministry of your Spirit as your word is unpacked to us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's lots of things in life that when you get them or you go through a particular process, all of a sudden, that one thing or that one action has effects upon so many different aspects of life. For example, if you become a citizen of a country that you are no longer a citizen, all of the things that were previously not yours because you weren't a citizen of that country, all of a sudden become yours. And today in the text that we're looking at this morning, it shows how the pouring out of God's Spirit effectively places everybody into two camps. The haves, that is those who are the saved, described in the passage as those who call upon the Lord or those even called by the Lord, or those who escape. Or the have-nots, those who are not the saved, not called who haven't escaped and won't escape the day of the Lord, but will receive in full the judgment for their sin. But as we've worked our way through the book of Joel, we've seen a constant two diametrically opposed situations. 
of judgment for sin, of grace and mercy and restoration. Like in chapter 1, we saw that great locust plague that God had sent as a judgment upon the people for their sin. That he says, tell your children, tell your children's children about this. That they might know the seriousness, the sinfulness of sin, but also the importance and the necessity of God to act in judgment against sin. Then as we got to chapter 2 in verses 1 to 11, we saw sound the alarm bells in Jerusalem, sound the, the warnings in Zion for this day of the Lord, which was described as an act of judgment and which was totally unstoppable, complete decimation. But then things started to turn in verse 12. And God says, turn to me with all of your heart. Don't just rend your garments, rend your hearts. Return to him. Not because they'd been treated unfairly in their judgment they'd received. Not even because they deserved something better. But the basis upon which they were called to return with all of their heart was God's character as revealed as being gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and for the sake of his name and his reputation. And last week we looked at verses 18 to 27, which has been one of my favourite parts of Joel so far, where it appears the people did repent, and the Lord restored and blessed them abundantly. We saw a God who was revealed himself as being slow to anger, but who is quick to act favorably towards the genuinely repentant. We saw a contrast of the great things that were happened by those that were sent to bring judgment upon the people, but then shown in comparison to the great things that the Lord has done putting whatever great things or, or things that we might experience in life as being utterly minuscule and insignificant by comparison to the great things that the Lord can and does do. We saw a, a visual picture that they will eat in plenty and be satisfied. Now that, this, that the whole joy was not so much they had the food and the farming and the prosperity back, but they had fellowship and richness with God to enjoy. And no matter how much of him they had, they couldn't have enough and it became increasingly enjoyable. And the end result was to be that they would overflow in praise. Now the five verses that we look at this morning, which in the Hebrew text actually has it as an entirely separate chapter, these five verses, are the most well-known verses in the book of Joel. But they're not so much well-known because they're in the book of Joel, but because they're in the book of Acts, as Peter quotes from it at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. After speaking about an abundant blessing for a repentant people in Israel, in Joel's setting, Now Joel speaks of a future and even more abundant blessing that was to come. 
So we're no longer talking about Joel's historic setting and applying those principles to ours, but he's actually speaking about the setting in which we live. We're going to see the fullness of God's spirit fall in those verses 28 to 29, the haves and haves-nots and how that creates two classes of people depending on those who have the spirit and those who do not in verses 30 to 32 and ask the question, what's it look like to have all or nothing? But firstly, the fullness of God's spirit for all. So just to read those two verses, and it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Now note there, from Joel's perspective, the when of what he's describing is future. He's saying it will come to pass afterwards. This is something future from the time perspective of Joel. So I want you to think from the perspective of those to whom Joel was prophesying to. Now remember, in the Old Testament, God on occasion would place his Holy Spirit upon somebody, often to enable them to carry out a particular task. Sometimes it was temporary, sometimes it was limited in nature. But in terms of statistically, what percentage of Old Testament children of God had the Holy Spirit? Tiny. And that those who did, people would have considered to be extremely blessed. Now in that context, hear what they heard about what Joel was saying would happen in the future. That God will pour out not just an occasional tiny little spattering here and there for the occasional person in a, in a limited measure for a limited purpose. He will pour out in all fullness his Holy Spirit on all flesh. The measure he describes is fullness. As Jesus says, John 3.34, he will give the Spirit without measure. The duration for which you will place the Spirit upon the people will be forever, not just a temporary enablement. And in that sense, Psalm 51, as wonderful it is, the line in verse 11, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, is not something that as Christians who have received the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant are to pray. Who were the recipients? It says, all flesh... Not just significant leaders or priests or, or prophets or someone who God has one particular special task. All flesh. Now by all flesh he doesn't mean every single human being. Saved or not saved, he's just going to give the spirit to everyone. That's not what he's saying at all. But on all kinds of people there will be no distinction. Even in the examples that he's provided, he speaks of old and young, male and female, slaves or free, and by implication of all flesh, Jew and Gentile. 
all of them, regardless of their status, will receive the fullness of his spirit. Now think of that, hearing that as Joel's audience, that would have been totally mind-blown. That God would pour out his fullness on all of his children, even slaves. And what effects does Joel particularly describe in verse 28? He says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Now, I don't think we need to be so rigid to say, okay, you have to be a son or a daughter to, for, to prophesy, or you must be an old man to dream dreams, no one else does it, or you have to be a young man to see visions. I think the point of what Joel is trying to say, whether male or female, old, young, slave or free, God's children will be spirit-empowered proclaimers of the good news of God. Now, we haven't got time to look at this in full, but for a little bit of Old Testament background, I encourage you to read Numbers chapter 11 and 12 in your own time. Because in those chapters, we'll see a little bit of a connection from an Old Testament perspective between the Holy Spirit and prophecy, but also the connection between dreams and visions to prophecy. So in Numbers chapter 11, the context is the people are starting to complain. They're starting to complain to Moses how much better the food was back in Egypt when they had meat. And then Moses then carries it on. He takes the complaint to God. God, you've given me these people. They're whinging all day long. God gives them... Moses, 70 elders to serve alongside him to share the load. That's the the context where we come into there. Then we read, And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. And he took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. That's a strange thing from our New Testament perspective that he, he takes a little bit of whatever measure that Moses had and he kind of scattered that around 70 of them. Whereas we live in an age when he pours out it in fullness upon his children and as soon as the spirit rested on them they prophesied but they didn't continue doing it now two men remained in the camp one named Eldad and the other one named Medad who wasn't the father of Eldad it wasn't just like someone asked Eldad to say who's that because that's me dad no they're two different guys and the spirit rested upon them they were among those registered but they had not gone out to the tent and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that and the Lord would put his spirit on them. Joshua was worried about Moses, like, Moses, man, this is your territory. You're the guy who does the prophesying stuff, and these guys are doing it. What does Moses say? He says, I wish all of you were. I wish all of you had the spirit. Paul says similar words in 1 Corinthians. Now, I need to clarify something here. 
well, we'll probably need to clarify lots of things along the way. I'm not saying that every single person who has the Holy Spirit, which is everyone who is a believer, is a prophet, or that every single person with the Holy Spirit has the gift of prophecy. When we get to 1 Corinthians, we'll see that Paul very clearly makes a distinction that not all have any of those gifts. But it is fair to say, in one sense, that all Christians have a proclaiming role to be spirit-empowered witnesses proclaiming the gospel. But also said there's a, what was the connection between dreams and visions and prophecy over in the following chapter, chapter 12 of Numbers. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision, and I will speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So what we see there in that, in that passage, he says, I used visions for some people to let them know who I was and the, the means that I communicated to them was, was a dream but that wasn't always the case. In the case of Moses, he just told Moses face to face. Now we're not going to go into any speculation around dreams and visions other than to say it really doesn't get much time in the New Testament. And statistically, it actually spends more times warning against the misuse of them than the positive use of them in the New Testament. But if I was in Joel's settings and I heard him proclaim that God was going to pour out his spirit in fullness upon all flesh, I reckon I'd be the guy heckling him every single day, when? When's this going to happen? This sounds great. But from our vantage point in history, we don't need to ask because God, through Peter, has told us. I've said this is the most well-known passage in Joel because of its being quoted in Acts chapter 2, which we're going to look at shortly. But the context here is they were gathered in Jerusalem just as Jesus had told them to do. The Spirit came down upon them. They were filled with the Spirit. They spoke in other tongues. Yes, at Pentecost... When they spoke in other tongues, it was other known languages. It specifically says in that chapter that the people who heard them heard them speaking in their own language. But it was other to the speakers in that it was languages that the speakers had never been trained to, but by the enablement of the Holy Spirit, they were able to speak in those languages. Now, some people seeing that accused them of being drunk. That's when we come into verse 14 directly after they've been accused of being drunk. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only about the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he says, we're not drunk 
But rather what you are seeing here, this is what Joel spoke about. And then he quotes. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now there's a couple of little differences between Joel and the way in which Peter quotes Joel. One of the more notable ones is when Joel spoke about it, he spoke about it as a future event and afterwards this will happen. Yet when Peter quotes, he says, and in, he says, this is what was, what you're seeing, this is what Joel spoke about and he says, in the last days. He doesn't say afterwards, he says, in the last days. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, the last days isn't a limited period of time that proceeds just before Jesus returns. The way in which the New Testament authors use that expression, last days, is to describe everything between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. In the sense that the apostles were living in the last days, you and I are living in the last days. John even goes so far in his epistle to say that that now is the last hour, even though he's writing in the first century. But if last days describes a period between his first and second coming, then what Peter says these things will characterise the last days would apply and characterise all of this era. There you go. Spoiler alert, cat out of the bag when we get to 1 Corinthians. No, I'm not convinced that spiritual gifts have ceased after the first century or the apostles. But for now, it suffice to rejoice what Joel foretold as being future is now a reality for us. To go from a period of time when a select few had a limited or temporary enabling of the Spirit to now when all who call upon the name of the Lord receive the fullness of his Spirit. Regardless of status, regardless of gender, slave or free, whether they're really intelligent or whether they're simple in their understanding, And because it's God's spirit pulled out on all flesh in all of its fullness, all of those other measures, old, young, wise or simple, any of those things count for nothing. God is not aided by your intellect if you're highly intellectual. Nor is the God's spirit hindered in any way if you're a little more simple in your understanding. I can't overstate how big of a statement it is that as you look through the Old Testament you see some of the things that God had done through his people and then say what I have 
What God has given me in the fullness of the Holy Spirit is a greater measure than what any of them experienced. And that possession of the Spirit divides all of humanity into two camps, the haves and the have-nots. Now, there are various approaches to these verses in verses 30 to 32, and particularly how they relate to verses 28 and 29. What do these cosmic signs got to do with what is said about the pouring out of the Spirit? Are they linked in any way at all? There's some who want to make a connection and say, well, they want to link them to the death, resurrection and, and the Pentecost event. Now we see how darkness came upon the earth for three hours at Jesus' crucifixion. We see pictures of fire and the coming down of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So there's maybe at least a minor, certainly not the major fulfilment of that in that sense, but more sort of maybe a small insight into a final proceeding before the day of the Lord in judgment. But I think one of the key connections between the two and how they do relate, because there's certainly a very strong theme of the day of the Lord in verses 30 to 32, is how having or not having the Holy Spirit makes a drastic difference on the day of the Lord. When Paul, which Sam read earlier in the service, from Ephesians, spoke of the Holy Spirit, he said this in verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When does Paul say you receive the Holy Spirit? When you believe. Yes, there are some exceptions to the rule you see in the book of Acts in the very early days. And even that, not, on, not even of all of the cases in, throughout the book of Acts as we looked through a number of years ago. But the normal function of God in this age is when you come to faith, you receive the Holy Spirit. You don't receive a little measure. You receive the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness. You do not at some later point need to receive the Holy Spirit after you've come to faith. You don't need someone to tell you to do something to receive more of the Holy Spirit. When you believe, you receive the Spirit. You are marked as his, you are sealed, guaranteed, and protected at that moment of faith. Therefore, it's a saved, marked, sealed, guaranteed people. The day of the Lord is a very different experience for them than for those who have not called on the name of the Lord. Remember back in Acts, sorry, in chapter two of Joel where the warning was sounded in Zion in Jerusalem for this coming of the day of the Lord. Yet here, in Acts chapter 2, people from all walks of life, representative of all flesh, are gathered in Jerusalem. And on that day, they hear this message from Peter. 
3,000 souls came to faith in Christ, received the Spirit, escaped and are described as survivors from the day of the Lord. There were those who call upon the name of the Lord. And if you look at verse 32, who are the survivors? Who are those who escaped, who call upon the name of the Lord? And it is those whom the Lord has called. We see in these verses both the mix of God's sovereignty to call a people to himself, but also human responsibility to call upon the name of the Lord who calls us. On that day, the day of the Lord, you have all or nothing. There is no middle ground. Isn't it a privilege to live in the day in which we live? When God has poured out his spirit in all of its fullness and all of his children, regardless of any status whatsoever, no special endowment for someone who's in a particular position, particular age or status, fullness for everyone. From the most prominent to the least, all have been given and had the Holy Spirit poured out in its fullness. A privilege unknown by any of the Old Testament saints. And for you and I, we can take courage to know there is no such thing as an under-resourced Christian. When you have the fullness of the Spirit at that point in faith, you have not been under-resourced to carry out any of the things which God has called us to do. And one of the results of his spirit being poured out is that we are made new. We are, we're not the same. We're not just an improved. We're not just restored. We are born again. We are a new creation. Unlike Joel's recipients who were, who were restored when they repented, but they could have turned again, fallen and been judged. When Jeremiah spoke of the coming of the new covenant, and even though the Holy Spirit's not directly mentioned, speaking of what he will do, he said these words, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like my covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. When any person repents of their sin before God, places their trust in Jesus, and receives the Holy Spirit, they are made a new creation. 
They are, as we've had read earlier on in Ephesians 1.3, given every spiritual blessing in Christ. But for those without the Spirit, that is those who have not repented, those who have not placed their faith in Christ, have not escaped, who are not saved, who have not called upon the name of the Lord, then this day of the Lord, this day of judgment, will be a day when they will be judged and receive the fitting consequences for their sin. Whatever they had in this life will account for nothing. The eternal scheme of things, no matter how much you have in this life, if you do not have Christ, if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you have nothing. But if you are in Christ, if you have turned to him in faith and you have received his Holy Spirit as a result, the day of the Lord is not a day to fear. The day of the Lord is a day to look forward to. The glorious fulfilment of everything that you've been promised and the completion of your salvation. doesn't mean you're sitting around on your elbows between here and then. But up until that day, his Holy Spirit dwells within his children who will not leave, who is guaranteed and sealed, who is working within us to renew us, to transform us from one glory to another. He empowers us for the glory of God and for the proclamation of his name and his gospel. It's a wonderful thing that Joel foresaw and spoke about. And it's also a wonderful blessing that you and I have as God's children to live in that age when he has poured out the fullness of his spirit. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I know I confess how frequently I consider things to be too hard or I blame circumstances for my actions. Yet, Lord, we rejoice that you have poured out the fullness of your spirit on your children, that you have not left us under-resourced for the life that you have called us to live. We know because you have promised us that we will struggle between the flesh and the spirit throughout all of our time till we see you face to face. But in that struggle, no matter how hard or compelling the, the desires or the flesh or how weak we might, powerless we might feel, with regards to our sin and walking in obedience, we know that you have blessed us with your fullness of your spirit. As Paul said to the Galatians, if you walk by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Lord, help us to know and behold the wonderful riches that you have given us through our relationship with Jesus that we might walk in light of who we are as you have declared us to be. Your children 
indwelt, sealed and guaranteed and empowered to live the life you've called us to live. Not by our strength, but by the strength that you provide alone. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.